Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MSUWMA podcast. This is Justin Jackson. Today's guest is Taylor Schulte. He's the founder and CEO of Define Financial and the co-founder of the Advisor Growth Community. He was ranked the number two independent advisor in the U.S. by Investopedia. He also hosts two podcasts, one called Stay Wealthy and the other called Experiments in Advisor Marketing. In today's episode, we dive deep on advisor marketing and how to get clients as a financial advisor. I hope you enjoy the show. Awesome. So can you just start off by sharing your journey as an advisor, uh, maybe even going as far back as how you got your first job, your first couple of years as an advisor, and then starting your own firm, like that whole story. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, my story goes back to about the age of 12. Uh, my grandfather was famous for giving us cash in an envelope every single Christmas. So we were always excited to go to his house and, and you know, see how much money he gave us and how many video games we could go buy. And when I was 12, he uh, changed gears on us. And instead of giving us cash, he gave us a stock certificate. And he used that gift of, of some shares of stock to teach us about and teach us grandkids about investing and, and dividends and, um, you know, how to look up the stock in the newspaper and just the, the power of compounding interest. So it was, it was this learning tool. And I was disappointed at the time, right, getting a, stock, a piece of paper in an envelope and not cash, but really did use it as a tool and, and really got me excited about the world of finance. Uh, it's interesting to me now because I didn't really know much about the financial planning field. A lot of the students I talk to, like yourself, are very knowledgeable. You follow a lot of financial advisors. You understand the difference between the broker-dealer world and RIAs and fee-only and fiduciary. Like I didn't know any of that. All I knew when I was in school was I like this thing called finance and I want to have a career in it. Uh, so, you know, I did what a lot of students do and just, you know, networked with different people, uh, you know, through my family, through friends, through professors. Uh, and ultimately I got my resume onto the desk at Morgan Stanley in San Diego here where I'm from and uh, interviewed with Morgan Stanley, interviewed with a few other firms as well, uh, but ultimately took a job at Morgan Stanley. And like, I literally didn't know, you know, what I was getting myself into. It was a job, right? Which is everybody, every graduate's dream is just have a job out of school, um, you know, good salary, uh, you know, the manager said, I'm going to give you a desk and a phone and you need to bring in something like $15 million in assets in two years. I'm like, whatever, I don't care. Just, you know, I'm just happy to have a job. And so uh, I took that job and really not knowing much. And, you know, thankfully I fell into my passion. I always share with my wife. I don't know. She had five, six, seven jobs out of school, just trying to find what she really enjoyed. And I didn't have to go through that. I, I fell in love on, on day one. I was at Morgan Stanley for, I think about six years. Uh, I had some, you know, frustrations that had built with how, uh, and it's not just Morgan Stanley, but how publicly traded companies, uh, where their interests lie, right? You know, their, their interests lie in, in the shareholders and in building profits for the firm, not necessarily for the clients. And so those frustrations kind of led me to uh, going into the independent world. I joined a small independent firm for a couple of years, and ultimately just decided I wanted to kind of do things my way. And I launched my firm in 2014. So we're about six and a half years old now. And that's where we're at. So there's been a, you know, a lot that's happened in between those, what, 13 and a half years. But it's been a really fun journey. And um, I, you know, I, I still to this day just have this, this you know, huge passion for this industry. And I, I love you know, seeing young people like yourself take an interest in it. 
So leaving a big firm to go uh, independent, did you find yourself missing some of the, the community element of just having a bunch of people in the office? Um, you know, what was that transition like for you? Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. It, yeah, it's important to take that into consideration. There's certainly a level of camaraderie, right? At a larger mm -hmm. firm, you know, there's offices all around you. You can jump in the kitchen and, you know, talk to people. And, and so there is an important element there. Uh, when I left and I got a new office space, I intentionally got an office in one of those, um, you know, we used to call them, you know, executive office suites where there's a bunch of different businesses on the same floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it'd be kind of like a, we work type situation today. And so I was able to have that camaraderie, but have, you know, my own practice in the independent world. So it's kind of the, the best of both worlds. I miss and still miss a lot of my colleagues, you know, at my previous company, but, you know, I was able to kind of replace that with just other professionals. And it was, you know, good from a business standpoint to have an attorney on one side of me and a CPA on the other side of me and, uh, you know, be able to share business with each other, but also, uh, you know, ha have somebody to talk to, to take a break during the day. So yeah, it, it, it's certainly an important consideration for sure. How do you, how do you feel not having a huge name, like Morgan Stanley behind you? Like, did you feel like you had, uh, I don't know, some credibility walking in when you were introducing people with that name and then, you know, starting your own firm, uh, you know, kind of inventing a brand, creating something, was there some discomfort in that transition for you? Or totally. Yeah, absolutely. Terrifying. Um, the, the first firm I joined had a bit of a reputation. They're still pretty small. They don't exist anymore today, but they were small, but had a, a good reputation. Um, so I felt pretty comfortable working with them. I felt pretty confident in that brand, um, but I didn't last there very long. Again, just some frustrations uh, you know, ultimately built up and I went and left my, did, did my own thing. And yeah, even starting my own firm, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm still young today. I was very young then. Uh, let's see, I was six and a half. So I was I think I was 28, 29 years old. Um, so I was terrified, not only just, you know, by my age and will people trust me, but like, here I am, this, this company nobody knows about. One of the things that I did do, and it was just kind of natural and authentic to me anyways, you know, I wanted to get out there and, and uh, do more writing and speaking and, and try to reach more people and build my personal brand. Um, so that was one of the first things that I did when I started my firm was to start to get my name out there and build some credibility. So I did start to write for some small local publications, which helped my credibility. I did end up hiring a PR firm for about a year to help get me some, you know, placements and interviews and some larger publications. So, you know, building some of that credibility up early on was certainly helpful. Uh, at least it gave me a little bit more confidence, uh, but it's certainly a challenge, you know, the, the, you know, in prior years. Yeah. I mean, just the name Morgan Stanley alone, having that on your business card, didn't matter if you were 22 or, or 42, uh, you're able to leverage that. And, you know, it was much easier to get people to trust you today. I don't know that that's the case. I think consumers are smarter. I think consumers are looking for real experts. Right. And I think that's where we're thriving right now is we found this little corner of the market that we're just really, really passionate about and really good at, and we're experts in, we're not trying to serve everybody. And that's what we're finding consumers searching for. I think one of the best analogies is in like the, the legal world or even, or even the medical world, right? Like, um, you know, you're not going to go to a divorce attorney to get your trust drawn up, right? You're not going to go to a personal injury attorney. If you're filing for divorce, like you're going to go to that specialist. And I think our industry is moving in that direction. The same thing could be said in a medical world, right? You need foot surgery. You're not going to go to a neurosurgeon and our industry for so long 
it was and still is trying to just serve everybody. So I think one of the, the best ways to combat the issue that you brought up is to get really specialized and, you know, really niche down. And, you know, we don't need to work with any, everybody. All we need is a hundred really good clients and you can have a great career. So I talked to Justin Castelli a little bit about that. Um, you know, not needing to serve everybody. And whenever you have kind of that, that mindset, I think it creates opportunities to create a community with other, uh, advisors. Is that why you decided to create the advisor growth community or like, did that fuel that not having this everybody's competition kind of a mindset? You know, I mean, even when I was, you know, serving everybody, Mm -hmm. I still collaborated a lot with my peers. I, I guess I just felt like, again, I I just don't have the capacity to work with everybody. There's, you know, plenty of of customers to go around. There's actually, there's almost like too many customers and too few advisors, to be honest. Um, And that's, you know, changing daily because advisors are older and retiring. So I just had this mentality, like there's, there's enough to go around here. Right. And so I always, always from day one, you know, tried to network and collaborate and learn from my peers. It's really how I got to where I am today. There's just no way I could have done it without help from my colleagues, you know, my so-called competitors, um, niching down and getting really specialized certainly helps with that. Right. If I'm, uh, you know, talking to an advisor who only works with young professionals, they're absolutely don't feel threatened in, in any way. Um, but I just don't think that's changed. It, it's been really helpful from a collaboration standpoint, really, though. I mean, uh, I'm able to help them grow their firm. When I hear from young professionals that need help, I can send them their way. And when they have retirees that have tax issues, they can send them my way. And um, again, it starts to resemble more of, of something you'll see in, in the legal profession or the medical profession. Say, hey, look, like I'm a I'm a heart surgeon. I, I can't help you, right? Like, right. you know, you need to go to a neurosurgeon. And so it's, I think just that that mentality has certainly helped kind of take us from an industry and we're slowly kind of moving towards a profession. But I, I've, I've always taken this, this collaborative approach, which Justin has as well. I think the genesis for starting the AGC was more of, hey, you know, it's really hard to connect with people, right? It's really hard for me to get to Justin and have a conversation with Justin. He doesn't know who I am. I have to direct message him on Twitter and hope he responds and find a time on his calendar and, you know, jump through all those hoops. Um, you know, some of the more well-known advisors, that's even harder. Uh, I was driving hours to go meet advisors and learn from them. And so the AGC, we thought, well, can we just make this process easier, right? Can we get all these rock star advisors and bring them under one roof so that it's easier for us all to connect? So I don't need to know Justin or have Justin's phone number. I can hop in the AGC and, you know, tag Justin and say, hey, Justin, I have a question for you and know that he is, you know, willing and able to help and answer. And so that's, that was kind of the, the, the initial idea of the AGC was like, it's really hard to, to befriend and connect with other advisors. The internet's chaotic. Um, and so how can we make that easier for us all to, to, you know, come together, at least those of us who have this collaborative mindset and we want to grow and we want to get better and we want to help and we're givers and we're not trying to hide things or compete. Um, you know, getting all of us in one room has just been, you know, super, super helpful. So do you have openings for the AGC? Is this for older advisors? Is this for like, you know, CEO entrepreneurs of their own independent practice, like who, who comprises the AGC? 
Um, it, it really is everybody. Uh, the, the criteria is that you're a financial advisor, that you're a lifelong learner that wants to just grow and get better every single day, not just professionally, not just growing your firm, but also personally. How can we be a better person, a better, better father, a better friend, right? All of those things, you know, will create a better experience in your firm and a better you know, service for your clients. So trying to get better personally and professionally. And then, like I said, just willing to help and want to give and, and, you know, um, you know, not, not just, not just take. So those are really the, the common threads. We have advisors that are 30 plus years in their career. We've got advisors that are just starting out and everything in between. Um, there probably are more firm owners like myself than employees, but I think that's, that's changing. Um, and it's fluid too, right? Somebody might be an employee today and then go and start their own firm tomorrow. We've seen right. a number of, of those happen in the community. So, um, you know, we, we like to think that it's, it's, well, I, I know that it's diverse. I know that there's not just, you know, one type of advisor that's a perfect fit. Um, it really is that person that just wants to help and collaborate and grow and get better. Um, that's hard to, that's hard to bring to life, right? It's hard to explain yeah. in marketing and messaging, which has been a challenge for us, but, um, you know, so, so far, you know, in our first year, we've got, you know, about 120 advisors, uh, from around the world. We've got advisors in, in Canada and UK. We've got a, a member down in South Africa. So it's been fun to see some of that diversity. Wow. That's really neat. Do you get together for a annual conference type of thing or just, do you do anything like that? Regular meetings? Well, uh, we had a really fun live event planned this year that got disrupted <laughs> due to, uh, you know, due, due to good old COVID. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a bummer. That was something we, everybody was really looking forward to was getting, uh, offline and meeting each other in person, uh, as you might expect, mm-hmm. having that that uh, in person relationship really really helps to build the strength of the and the bond of the community. So that's one thing we're looking forward to getting back to hopefully next year. Uh, you know, there's a lot of conferences throughout the year that most of us will attend, and again, pre COVID, we would organize little meetups at those conferences where there'd be ten AGC members or fifteen of us and we'd go grab a room or go, you know, grab a beer or, or dinner or something. And again, connect offline and get to know each other in person. So I hope we can get back to doing that again. Right now, we're just trying to do our best uh, to do that virtually. And it's not easy, but that's just the state of the world right now. Okay. So as the host of the Experiments in Advisor Marketing podcast, um, I think there's no one more appropriate to give us a quick marketing 101 to the CFP <laughs> students uh, listening to this. Um, so I was thinking I could do a rapid fire round of subjects. Um, you don't need to answer them quickly. I'm just going to ask them quickly. I'm just around marketing, business development. Um, and for the people who don't know what these topics or subjects are, um, could you explain what they are and then, uh, give your two cents. And if you think they're worthwhile, do you like them and maybe even your personal experience? That sound good. Yeah, Sounds like fun. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Nice. Okay. First topic, cold calling, cold approaches, over the phone, email, walk-ins, et cetera. What are your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely love it. Like, I absolutely love it. I think um, I, I've shared this before that, you know, my business, I, I've been around for six and a half years. I have an, a, a public presence. You can find my phone number online. You can find my address online. But in six and a half years, I've had one single student pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, I'm looking for an internship. I've researched your firm. I love what you're doing. I'd love to you know, have a chance to work with you this summer. I've had one person do that. Um, and so 
when I go speak to uh, the local college here or speak to students, I, I highlight this because again, like it, to me, it's so easy for you to stand out from the crowd right now because everybody is hiding behind a computer screen. Everybody's going to LinkedIn and sending the same messages. Everybody's filling out forms on websites and, and copying and pasting the same thing. And so I think if you can just think a little bit outside the box and just do a little bit more than the person next to you, whether it's in a business development role and you're trying to like grow a business or you're a student and you're trying to find a job or an internship, like take that extra step. Again, our phone number is literally on our website. Our address is on our website. Like show up in my office with a nice suit on with your you know resume in hand. You don't have to show up like asking for a job, but you know, if somebody showed up in my office and was just like, Hey, I've researched every single firm in this town. I've picked 10 of them that like, I just absolutely would love to work for. Your firm is one of them. I know everything about your firm. I've listened to all of your podcast episodes. I've read all your blog posts. Um, you know, I just want to you know stop by and introduce myself and let you know, I'm looking for an internship. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. Um, you know, I just left it that like, I mean, like, I mean, that'd be wildly impressive, um, you know, and whether or not we're hiring or not, and that would actually go through, I don't know, but I, I could guarantee you, like if you did that 10 times or 20 times, uh, you'd okay. find a job or find an internship. Yeah. So it drives me absolutely crazy when I hear from students that just send a really boring, canned, you know, cold DM on LinkedIn or whatever. In fact, I've got uh, my own kind of canned response that I'll often respond to them with, with a version of what I just told you, which is like, just make the extra effort. And it can be, you know, if walking into an office or cold calling is just not your thing and it's daunting, you can still do it via cold emailing or cold direct messaging. Um, you know, simply just showing that you've taken the extra effort, right. Um, you know, acknowledging, you know, your favorite podcast episode or favorite blog post that that person has written, right. Like making it a, a personal approach, um, you know, and not making it all about you wanting to, to get something out of it. Um, you know, just, t just like make that extra effort. So yeah, I'm a huge fan, uh, again, business development world or looking for a job or anything. I think those are easy ways to stand out. I think one of the themes in marketing right now is, is back to basics. I think we've forgotten about mm -hmm. just the, the basics of marketing. Snail mail, mailers, <laughs> handwritten letters, et cetera. What do you, how do you feel about those? Are they worthwhile to pursue sometimes other times? Not so much. I, again, I think, uh, I think it's, it's great. Uh, I I've highlighted before, you know, when's the last time you've received just a high quality personal, you know, physical mailer in your mailbox. It's probably been a really long time. You know, most of it's advertisements or a, a bill or, you know, somebody trying to, you know, get you into a steak dinner or something, but like just a high quality piece of mail that just adds massive value. It just doesn't really happen on a regular basis, if at all. So I think again, like just physical mail, a handwritten note, or again, something just of extreme value to that person without asking for anything in return. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity there. We, as you probably know, we ran a snail mail experiment last year. I learned a lot by doing it, right? Just like anything, you kind of have to ingrain yourself and obsess over it in order to have really good results. You can't just throw a bunch of mailers in the mail and you know expect something in return. So just by doing that experiment, we learned a lot and I shared everything that we learned. And I'm confident that if we went back and we did it around two, uh, we would have a lot more success. So these things certainly take time. It's not just as simple as writing a card to somebody and landing a, a, a deal. Um, 
So yeah, and, and again, I know there's a lot of students that listen to this. And so I would say this works the same way looking for a job or an internship. Again, uh, could you imagine instead of uh, just sending your resume via email or just in an envelope that you packaged it up, right? In a really unique way, in a, in a shiny box with a different color and you overnighted it instead of stuck in the you know, normal mail. And I got that thing that showed up like you're, better believe like if that thing lands on my desk, like, I'm probably going to open it. The decision maker is probably going to open that beautiful package that you put together. So, you know, think about how you can just do a little bit more to stand out from somebody. Um, and it might not just be a resume. It might be like, Hey, I know Taylor loves marketing. I'm going to, you know, one of my favorite marketing books is blah, blah, blah. I'm going to put that in the box with my resume. Um, and you just like take a few extra steps and these things can go a really long way. Content marketing, blogs, YouTube podcasts, especially for younger advisors, you know, what, what's your, what's your perspective on that? You know, what's, is it something that younger advisors should be pursuing? Um, which of these do you think are the most valuable, uh, et cetera? I think everybody should be doing some version of content marketing as early as they can. One of my biggest regrets is not putting myself out there earlier. I wasted a lot of time in my twenties, just goofing around and really not you know, working on myself. Mm -hmm. um, the key here is that you pick one thing, one, you know, one of those channels that you just named, you pick one of them and one of them only. And uh, it's important that that channel is authentic to you, that comes natural to you. And it's something that you enjoy doing and that you have some sort of talent for, right? You're not going to, uh, you know, be the best podcaster right out of the gates, but like you have just some sort of like natural talent and ability right. and comfort level with doing it. Um, and if you do that and you just pick that one thing, and again, you just obsess over it and you're like, I love podcasting. I have a little bit of a talent. I can tell, like, I'm just going to stick with podcasting. I'm going to go to podcasting conferences. I'm going to learn from other podcasters. I'm going to listen to other podcasters. Like, and if you just obsess over that one thing and, and you hit record and you put yourself out there and you're consistent and you're patient, I mean, the, the benefits are going to be absolutely massive. Uh, I think where people run into problems is they try to have a podcast and a YouTube channel and a blog, or they're on LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook, and they're doing all these things at once, uh, coupled with doing things that aren't natural to them that don't, that aren't authentic to them. Like I, like, I don't really enjoy doing video. Like I don't even like doing zoom meetings like this. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd rather hide behind my microphone and, and, and produce my content that way. Um, I'll push myself outside of comfort zones. That that's one thing, right? I'll, I'll push myself outside of a comfort zone, but you know, most of my time and energy is spent on the things that I'm good at, that I enjoy doing, that fuel me, that energize me. You know, if, if you attempt to shoot a YouTube video, and it takes you hours and hours and hours and you have a headache and you're worn out and you're tired, like that's probably a signal to you that, I don't know, video is maybe not your thing. So I don't care if it's, if it's YouTube, if it's a podcast, if it's a blog, I don't care if you're like handwriting things in a journal or something. I don't, I don't care, but like find some version of content marketing that's natural and authentic, authentic to you. Be consistent, be patient, put yourself out there and the benefits will be, you know, very worth it. Search engine optimization. I think a lot of finance kids probably don't know what this is. Um, first of all, just SEO. Um, is this something that early on uh, advisors should be worried about, you know, building their own advisor page, building it up type of thing? Even if you're at a bigger firm, do you think SEO is something that is an approach that should be pursued early on? Um, 
it depends. It depends what the marketing goals are and what your capabilities are. You know, mm -hmm. at larger firms, your hands are kind of tied with how you can approach SEO. Um, there are certainly some ways around it, but I, there are advisor friends of mine that have, you know, no presence really online that have been very successful or don't have any, you know, uh, optimized websites and they've done very, very well. So you don't have to rely on SEO. Um, I have long said that I think it's uh, a missed opportunity for a lot of firms. Um, I know that there are firms around me that could really benefit from optimizing things so that consumers can find them. And, and for those that don't really understand SEO or search engine optimization, it's just, you know, Google's job is to match up websites with what users are searching for. So um, if you type in Roth IRA or what is a Roth IRA, Google's job is to feed you the top 10 results that will answer your question in the best way. Uh, Google wants you to have a good experience online. So if you Google what is a Roth IRA, they want to serve you the absolute best article on what is a Roth IRA. Um, and so quality is really important and Google is very careful about that. And the same can be said for finding an electrician, right? Or an attorney or a financial advisor. And so, um, you know, Google is just trying to match people up with what they're searching for and making sure those are high quality people. Um, but most advisors, yeah, just kind of underestimate it and don't understand it. The great thing about SEO is like, there's just some very basic things that you need to do and you can stand out online pretty easily because it's not very competitive because most advisors aren't really taking advantage of it. Um, so yeah, I, I think if you have the capability um, where you're at or a website that you own, I think absolutely it's worth just nailing down the basics, but I would be very, very careful about going down the rabbit hole and getting lost in it because really it is about just nailing down the, the very basic stuff and then focusing on producing really high quality content. Uh, quality, quality will win. Quality over quantity. You could write five of the best blog posts, you know, on a certain topic, and Google will, will reward you. So it's, it's not about who can write the most or the longest. Um, it really is quality. Niche marketing, and then I guess kind of local marketing. Just knowing a little bit about your backstory. Um, I say local marketing. I mean like being the advisor of San Diego or East Lansing or wherever um, versus having a niche, like a profession or some type of person you serve. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I think hyper local marketing um, can work really well, especially if you struggle with finding a niche, right? If you don't work with doctors or dentists or attorneys or retirees and you're really kind of struggling there, I think taking that hyper local approach can certainly help. Uh, it really does depend on where you're located. San Diego is a great market for that, right? We've got three and a half million people here. It's an affluent city. Uh, there's a lot of people that, that need help. So uh, yeah, it's a great opportunity to target you know, lo local, uh, local consumers. Uh, I have a friend in, in North Dakota, uh, not, not the same, right? There's, there's not really the, the same demographic there. So he's had to take more of a, a national approach, um, you know, niche, find a, a really specific niche and then go out to the entire country to find that niche. So it really does depend on who you're trying to target and, and where you, where you live. Um, but yeah, if you're in the right city, I think hyper-local marketing and just, uh, again, uh, obsessing over your city and how can you contribute to your city? How can you contribute to the local news networks? How can you write for the small newspapers that don't get enough love? Like, you know, again, if you just obsess over this stuff and just think, how can I add more value and get better? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great way to uh, 
uh, again, like be a part of your community and, and add value to the community. And I think it will work itself out and you'll, you'll benefit in the long term. How did you develop your own personal niche? Um, did it just come organically to you? Did you sit down and think, uh, who do I want to talk to? Like, what was kind of your process for developing that? Yeah, I'm not really the best person to answer that because, you know, it, it took me, I don't know, you know, 10 or 11 years to finally, you know, realize that I need to get more specific with who I work with and that I can't work with everybody uh, because I was trying to work with everybody for way too long. Um, I was just, I was trying to grow my business and I was saying yes to every single client and just, you know, trying to, I, I thought more was better, right? I thought I more clients was going to be better. And uh, I hit a, a pretty big growth barrier in my business. I just, it was too chaotic. There was too many things going on. Every single person looked differently, uh, looked different and had different problems. And it was just tough to scale. So I hit kind of a wall in my business. And I realized I needed to get more narrow and more focused and more specialized in order to continue growing. So it was really just uh, trial and error and learning the hard way and leaning on my peers who had hit that same wall and got over it and what did they do to to get over it um and yeah ultimately landed where we're at today which is you know we only work with people over age 50 that are focused on you know retiring uh that have a million dollars or more in investable assets and uh you know they want to lower their taxes so tax planning is really big for us so um yeah, we just want to make sure that they, they check those boxes because that's really who we do our best work with and, and really enjoy working with. Um, so that's where we're at today. Yeah. Center of influence, referral marketing, network marketing, you know, building the sphere of influence. Um, can you explain what that is, especially to a lot of students who haven't had sales related jobs? I think any sales job, they're going to explain that to you, but people who haven't had an upbringing in a business development world, how do you feel? about those mediums. Yeah, um, and I, I don't wanna sound like a broken record here. I'll just say that all of these things I feel positive about. I think they're all great you know, methods of, of marketing. Mm -hmm. It really is about choosing that one thing. And if you're a relationship person and you're a face-to-face -face person and you love being out there in the community and getting to know people, you know, COI marketing or what we call center of influence marketing, you know, is a fantastic way to, to go about growing your business or even finding a job or whatever it might be. So uh, I guess the definition of that would be there are, you know, people in, uh, in business and in the community that, um, you know, could, could help you grow your business, right? The, there are CPAs and uh, attorneys uh, and other professionals that we can collaborate with and help each other grow. I think the big mistake that most people make with center, well, two, two mistakes that people make with COI marketing. One is they go into the relationship with this short-term mindset and try to uh, try to take from the other person. Like, hey, I'm a financial advisor. I'm looking for business. Like, do you have any clients you can send me? Uh, that's that's not the right approach to that. Yeah. It is a long-term game. It, it is about building that relationship and adding value to that person and helping that person and getting to know. Uh, them and their business and who their clients are and how you can help them. Um, so that's the first mistake is just, you know, uh, thinking of it as this near-term marketing activity and just, uh, and taking more than giving. The second mistake I think is crossing into this, this friend, crossing this friend boundary. And all of a sudden this CPA who you were trying to form this business relationship with, you really like, and now you're out drinking beers and playing golf and having fun and the wives are getting together. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, but 
if you're truly looking at this as a marketing activity, I think you do need to draw a line there and say, no, like I'm here, we're here for a reason. Uh, we're both trying to grow our businesses. I think there are certain, you know, rules, if you want to call it that, to, to put in place and hold each other accountable and make sure that we're not just goofing off on the golf course and lying to ourselves and saying, you know, we're, we're networking here when that's not really happening. Um, I think that's what you find out when you start to turn over some, some rocks with, and talking to other advisors is, you know, they say, oh, I, you know, I, I network with CPAs and it's really just a bunch of friends that they, you know, hang out with. And, and while that can turn into business, you know, here and there, I think you have a lot more success if you take it more seriously and, and approach it like you would other marketing activities. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great avenue if it comes naturally to you, right? Like, so the, the friendship thing, building friendships, is that to, uh, I don't know, keep it serious, uh, keep it a more disciplined pursuit, or is that also like, you know, losing relationships, you know, friendships fall out, you know, if you get, make things personal, I don't know, maybe interactions happen with, you know, your wives or whatever, you know, social things well, happen. I think that there's maybe some risks there, uh, yeah. but I don't think that's really my concern. It's more okay. about losing, losing sight of what your initial goals were, you know, mm. in getting together. So I'm not saying you can't be friends and okay. get together and, and play golf and, you know, get the families together. I, I think as long as you don't lose sight of what, what the intentions were and, you know, maybe those intentions have changed. You say, Hey, you know, we first got together thinking we could help each other grow our businesses. That's not really the case. Like we learned that our businesses don't really sync well at all. Um, but we really like each other and we're like, you know, let, let's just be friends. Right. Like, I think that's, that's totally fine. I think, the mistake I see is people lying to themselves and I, look, I, I'm saying this because that's what I did. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I would, I would say that I'm, I'm going to lunch with a CPA or playing golf with a CPA and, you know, tell my wife that I'm, I'm out there networking. And if you just really get real and honest with yourself and look at it, like, it's not really what's happening. I'm having a fun day with a, with a CPA, but like, we're not actually focused on helping each other's business grow. We're just goofing off and hoping, hoping that, something will happen. And again, those things do come naturally and you might have a client that comes your way here and there. Um, but you know, again, if we, if we're really taking it seriously as a marketing activity, the marketing activities that we're actually doing right now in our firm, that's working, like they produce clients on a weekly or, or, or prospective clients on a weekly basis, not just like here and there, something falls our way. So I think you just have to, yeah, just not lose sight of, of the goals and the intentions. So when it comes to investing in marketing activities early on, um, how do you balance, you know, spending money and in, in investing into yourself and building, you know, building a business and also just preserving capital enough to, uh, you know, maintain your own business and, you know, your personal life? Because marketing dollars can essentially have an unlimited spend, especially in advertising, or you could justify paying a really expensive video company. Um, you know, you can spend about as much money as you want to in marketing. How do you, how do you balance that, uh, investment early on? Um, I think the way to balance it is to not spend or not waste the money. I think a lot of people will waste money on marketing because it's avoidance behavior. They're avoiding doing the hard work. They're avoiding, you know, taking the supercomputer that everyone has in their pocket and shooting a YouTube video and publishing it, thinking that they have to have it professionally edited and produced. And that's just not the case. Um, so I think we, we use our, our dollars, uh, to avoid actually doing the hard work. Um, so I actually don't think you need to spend much money at all. 
Um, so there really isn't a lot to balance other than just holding yourself accountable to, to hitting publish, to hitting record and, and putting yourself out there. Um, there does come a point where money does need to be spent to pour gasoline on the fire, right? Like, Hey, I'm really enjoying this YouTube thing. I'm getting some traction. I realize that I'm good at it. I'm getting good feedback. I've got some subscribers that are growing. Like how, how can I pour some gasoline on this? Like I, I've proven to myself that I can do it, that I'm consistent. Um, and again, positive feedback. And that might be the time where you start to, okay, let's invest a little bit of money and, and pour some gasoline on this fire. You see this a lot with really professional marketers. If you go back to, I don't know if, if there are people that you admire, um, you know, Gary Vee might be a mm -hmm. good example. You go back to Gary Vee's original videos. Like he didn't have a videographer following him around everywhere he went. Right. Yeah. He'd grab his phone and shoot a video. And, and the reason it worked so well is just like, he was good at it. It was natural. He was consistent. He didn't care what anybody thought. Um, and he waited to get traction before he started to spend money and take it to the next level. So, um, yeah, I, there are elements where money is required to be spent, but for the most part, especially in the early days, I'll, I'll just straight up say like, I've wasted a lot of money on things that didn't need to be wasted on. And I just didn't really have any guidance. I was just, you know, I didn't know any better. Um, so that's why I say that now. In closing, um, is there any advice you'd like to give to young advisors through the lens of marketing or just anything in general that you think might help them start their careers? Uh, I think my biggest piece of advice outside of everything I just talked about, about like yeah. finding a job and finding internships, my biggest piece of advice is to uh, get a job, any job. Uh, I see too many students that are like, I'm only going to work for a San Diego fee only, you know, firm with less than a billion. I don't know. Like they have all these like criteria. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to work for a wirehouse. I, you know, it has to be a fiduciary. Um, and I say like scratch all that, like go and just get a job, get your foot in the door, get your feet wet, um, in that job, just, you know, work your butt off and really pay attention every single day, pay attention to the tasks that you're doing. And, uh, I, I would like literally write this down write down the things that you enjoy doing in that job and the things that you don't enjoy doing in that job. And when you're ready to make your next pivot, now you know what you're looking for and you're a little bit more clear about you know, what, what you're looking for in your career. Take that next job that's maybe a little bit more fitting for you. And again, like, what do I enjoy? What don't I enjoy? What, you know, how, can I, how can I do more of, of the things I, I enjoy and I'm good at every single day? Um, and continue to learn and grow and pivot. Like the, the first job you get is not going to be your last job. And so I would just not paralyze yourself uh, or pigeonhole yourself by having all this criteria. Um, look, I, I wouldn't trade my experience at Morgan Stanley for the world. I learned so much about this career and the markets. Um, I, I just, it, it's, it's invaluable. And so uh, although I had some frustrations, it led to where I'm at today. Like I wouldn't trade that for the world. So I would, that's my advice is like, just go get a job, any job, learn, grow, pivot. Um, the important thing is just not to get stagnant, right? I think people take a job, they really don't like it, they hate it, but they stay there for 30 years because they're afraid to uh, to take that next step and take that risk. And that's one thing I've always been good at is paying attention to how I'm feeling. And whenever I feel like I hit this growth wall or I'm stagnant and not moving forward, it's a signal to me, okay, I got to get a little uncomfortable here and find a new job or start my own firm or just make some sort of a move. So, you know, pay attention to all those things and, you know, don't, don't get stagnant. Don't get stuck in that, that job that you hate forever, but, um, you need to, you gotta take action. You gotta start moving forward. Awesome. Taylor. Thank you so much, Justin. Thank you. I really appreciate it.
If you liked what you just heard, please like, comment, and share. This is Vincent Pacillo, producer of the MSU WMA podcast. MSU WMA, or Michigan State University Wealth Management Association, is a student organization part of the Eli Broad College of Business located in East Lansing, Michigan. Our mission is to inspire and educate the next generation of financial planners. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please check out our channel on all platforms such as Spotify and Apple Podcast, And check out our social media at MSUWMA and MSUWMA.com.